trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Appreciate you joining me today as I venture forth into another foray into wrong think. You know, by nature, I'm really not a troublemaker. I'm a pretty live and let live kind of guy. But uh, I've woke up to the idea that uh, maybe, just maybe, we are living in a time of extraordinary psychological warfare. I don't say that lightly either. I really believe that you and I are under sustained attack from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and possibly even in our sleep, you know, depending on what we've been thinking about that day. But it just seems like there is so much information being blasted at us from every angle. And and on top of that, I mean, that's that's been a problem for a long time. You know, for 70 years ago, I think it was the uh, compilers of the great books of Western civilization were concerned. Well, you know, the great blizzard of information that swirls around us all the time. We're worried that people are going to get bamboozled. That was way before the Internet, way before much of the mass media had, had taken on the various iterations that we have right now. So it hasn't improved, but I think what we see, the, the, the place where we mostly see this this psychological warfare comes down to uh, either falsehoods or misinformation or misdirection or disinformation being directed at us or just the outright attempts to stifle dissent. I'll give you a case in point. Uh, the, uh, the Pfizer uh, video from Project Veritas where a doctor who works for Pfizer uh, was on a grinder date and uh, bragging of all the things to brag about. Yeah, man, we're doing this, we're doing that. You know, talking about uh, what they call it, directed evolution, which is kind of a nicer way of gain of function, but basically researching viruses and souping up viruses or tweaking the viruses in order to justify future, you know, vaccines. Which, I mean, from a from a business standpoint, from a standpoint of, hey, if we can get more and more people regularly buying these vaccines, I mean, it's it's going to return incredible amounts of money to the stockholders. So, you know, from from the one perspective, okay, you can see the incentive. Now, from an ethical and moral standpoint, that's pretty reprehensible stuff. And the crazy thing about it is, you know, this, this doctor uh, just, I mean, he just spills the beans. He's now, don't tell anybody I told you this, but uh, just bragging. You have to wonder, what what kind of person would be impressed with that? The doctor, when he gets confronted, by the way, you know, he's, oh, I was lying. I was just lying to impress a date. That's what men do, you know. And biggest come apart I think I've seen on video in, in quite some time. But the really interesting thing is how much... The mainstream media has just studiously ignored this. Oh, yeah, there's nothing going on. There's nothing going on. And and look, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest there's this grand conspiracy going on, but I'm going to ask you to notice, if you have watched, and I'm just going to say like the national television news, I've been spending more time with my mom, and uh, she's you know just turned 88. She's 
She's mostly, you know, they're hanging out at her home. Her window to the world typically is what's coming through her TV screen. Now, the local TV station does a pretty good job of being objective in their news. However, in those times when I'm visiting her and she's got CBS News on or, or whatever, if she has one of the national news networks, without fail, most of that content that is being sponsored during that newscast is brought to you by Pfizer or other pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they they spend a lot of money advertising their various products. And again, there may be some people who are helped by these various products, but my point is those sponsorship dollars have more impact than just simply, well, you know, they're just trying to uh, help keep the news industry afloat. With those sponsorship dollars comes a uh, certain quid pro quo. In other words, uh, the news media is not likely to report on something that could possibly offend its advertising sponsors. They don't want to cut off that gravy train. They don't want to bite the hand that's feeding them. I mean, that, that, does that, is that too uh, complex of a conspiracy? Am I too far down the rabbit hole? Because to me, that's just basic human nature. It's, it's, the, it's the double-edged sword of having sponsors and having advertisers in that uh, you have to choose, okay, is the sponsorship, you know, there to, uh, to support just keeping the, the message on the air, the truth going out, or do you have to adjust your message to make sure that you're not offending your sponsor? You see what I'm saying? So, anyway... It's been very curious how quiet everything has been. Pfizer did release uh, non-denial, okay? They never denied that this uh, Jordan, what's his name, was, was, was lying. They never said that he was a liar. But they buried, you know, in their legal press, well, you know, here's what's going on. Lots of information that really had nothing to do with the accusations at hand. And, you know, Dr. Robert Malone, I think, actually has a pretty good dissection of this. If you go to lourockwell.com, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But uh, my point is, first of all, there's incredible media silence. Then there's this wave of bots and uh, and people out there, you know, controlled opposition, you know, casting doubt. Wow, you know, this is probably staged and, and whatnot. And I can understand the willingness of people wanting to believe, okay, you know, this this has to be staged. Because if Pfizer really is engaging in the kind of stuff that this this... I assume former employee was talking about that's monstrous. I mean, it's, it's beyond monstrous. We're talking Nuremberg type stuff that needs to be accounted for really ugly stuff. And I don't want to believe that even though I'm a huge skeptic of, well, most things considering the, uh, the government medical establishment, I don't want to believe it because I think that, uh, it's, it, it would, it would, shine a light onto something so ugly that I don't think any of us would would ever be able to look at the world quite the same way again. It reminds me of something that uh, that Ammon Bundy told me uh, clear back, this was probably in 2014, maybe 2015. I interviewed him and we talked about uh, specifically some of the people he had to deal with when the BLM came to the Bureau of Land Management, that, that BLM <clears throat> came to confiscate their cattle. And I remember Ammon telling me, you know, in a way, this experience has left me um, shaken. In other words, it's, it's taken some of my innocence from me because 
He says, in my heart, I really didn't believe there were people out there who actually thrived on the idea of harming and injuring or even killing other people. He says, I, I, in my heart, I couldn't believe that there were people that would actually have that kind of wickedness in their heart and in their soul. But then he met people like that. Dan Love, the special agent in charge, a prime example of this, the guy who kept a kill list of people who had killed themselves because of his threats of, of prosecution and heavy-handedness and just uh, brutalizing them and their families. So I kind of understand, you know, the idea of, yeah, I don't, I don't want to face this. I don't want to look at it because once it's been seen, it's not something that you can unsee. And at the same time, I think we have to be willing not to wallow in it, but at least to acknowledge, holy cow, this looks like it could be for real. I mean, I heard people joking around and, and, well, maybe not even joking, just pointing out, you know, when they were pushing the vaccine so hard, they being the government, the news media, the vaccine companies, most institutions pushing, pushing, pushing. It's safe. It's effective. It'll, it'll stop COVID in its tracks. None of that turned out to be true. And yet they're still pushing it. The narrative is still, you know, first and foremost, And I remember people warning, hey, you don't want to convert your immune system into a subscription service. Or every six months, well, I better go get in line to go get the the latest booster. And by the way, I'm not trying to rub salt in the wounds of those people who did end up getting the shot or getting boosters. More and more, I talk to people who did because they felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. I have yet to talk to anybody who has said, you know what? I'm glad I did it. I know there are such people out there. I I see their comments on social media and so forth. But the people I talk to in person, for the most part, are like, I feel like they lied to us. And that's got to be that's got to be a pretty bitter realization. Okay, not a reason to rub their noses in it. Well, told you so. It's just no, they did. They lied to us. And and I, I only say this because I believe they continue to lie to us. So I hope to see the curtain pulled back on more truth, even if it's unpleasant truth. I'd rather rather face unpleasant truths and know exactly where we stand and then, you know, chart our progress forward from there than just kind of wander around in the dark, hoping not to bump into something too unpleasant. I hope that makes sense. But my point here through all of that is a very long-winded way of saying the media silence is absolutely deafening. And Pfizer's release of their legal disclaimer. Yeah, 6 o'clock on a Friday. Gotcha. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I got that out of my system. I just, uh, you know, had, had a few things on my mind over the weekend. Let's dive into some content that uh, will make you think. You don't have to agree, but I think this is this is some good food for thought. I remember years ago beginning to appreciate the power of the parable. I think it was at a time when I was serving a mission for my church in uh, in the Bible Belt, not just the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt in Oklahoma. 
And oftentimes I would encounter people who had differing views than I did. And sometimes those people wanted to argue and, and you know, to contend earnestly for the faith. And I remember one time saying, man, what can you do that just doesn't turn into a big, you know, protracted bash back and forth? Well, this scripture says this. Oh, yeah, well, this scripture says that. And uh, one, of, one of my missionary companions said, you know, maybe we should try telling him a parable. And I thought, okay, that's actually... That's actually kind of a smart way to do it, but I'm just not that smart. But the parable is is an amazing thing in the sense that it's a story that can speak to people on many different levels of understanding, and nobody, you know, is, is going to feel offended if they don't understand it as deeply as the next person. So if you want to teach somebody something, parables are a great way to do it. Um, Robert E. Wright has a remarkable parable tackling the age-old question of who will build the roads. Okay, anybody who's had kind of an awakening to uh, freedom, libertarianism, you know, this is always the question when someone says, do we really need all this government? Someone is going to speak up, well, who's going to build the roads? Huh? As if, as Tom Woods points out, yes, without government, uh, we would build schools and houses and businesses and churches and hospitals and then just stand there looking sadly at each other from afar because, I don't have any way to get from here to there because there's no roads. You know, the point being, we figure it out. We're, we're very innovative. But I want, you, I want to share with you, this is from Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. But who will build the roads? A parable. He says, first came the native trails and traces. Fair and free they were, unless you were on the wrong one at the wrong time or wanted to haul more than a dog team or horse could carry. Then came the local government roads. Suck, they did, your wagon wheels into the muck. Corporate roads were next. Turnpikes, the people called them. Imperfect they were, but far superior to what came before. Annual toll passes made paying for passage convenient, but alas, only locally. Then came the horseless carriages and the wanderlust. Inconvenient it was to pay tolls frequently in cash, when cruising far from home, which became commonplace. Leviathan then said unto the people, Your ways shall once again be free. New roads it built, and the old corporate ones over it took. But some of the people did not want roads, or rather, the ever higher taxes needed to build and repair them. They were ignored until a great depression overtook the land when it was decreed that a tax on fuel would fuel construction of the freeways. What the people saw was good because the users of the road were, again, those paying for the roads, as in the days of the turnpikes, at least more or less. But what the people didn't see was that many a dollar was wasted on cheap construction methods that led to needless potholes, endless construction delays, and yet higher fuel taxes. Then came new horseless carriages that needed little or no taxed fuel, its coffers drained by those highway robbers. Leviathan said, let us now tax vehicles based on the number of miles they travel on our free roads. Now the people did not rejoice, but instead began to study history, where they found old stories about the ways of the ancient turnpikes. And it dawned upon a few, it dawned on a few of the people that if they were going to have to pay per mile traveled anyway, they should return the roads to private hands and pay tolls via electronic transponder, the modern way to achieve the convenience of the old turnpike pass system. The owners of those private roads, those few in the know knew, would provide better roads at lower cost than Leviathan ever could. 
Different incentives private owners have to make roads that do not suck tires into potholes or turn minutes into hours while overpaid contractors on their laurels do rest. Scream the few in the no did, but the rest of the people did not listen or perhaps could not hear due to the din of Leviathan and its many media minions. But maybe, just maybe, others one day will join the call once they hear how much cash could be recouped and costs and delays avoided by returning to the path once heavily traveled, the one where travelers, not Leviathan, decided how best to travel hither and thither. Again, this is from Robert E. Wright, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Economic Research. And uh, Robert has got away with words here. This is, there's, there's a greater message here, though, though. And I love that he did this in the form of a parable because... Some people say, oh, well, that's kind of fun, you know, and and uh, people who really have, have studied out the issue of, you know, how, how could we privatize the roads? Recognize that what he's saying is very viable. And yet there will be those who will grind their teeth and, this is scary, you know, and I don't know if we want to do that because, again, without government, who will build the roads? I don't know, but I suspect that we are fast approaching a time in which uh, there are going to be challenges that even all the king's horses and all the king's men, which is my fancy way of saying government, will be unable to properly address, or at least satisfactorily address. And that means that we're going to have to be more innovative and have to come up with solutions on our own. This is where I trust the free market. Simply because it's, it's the kind of thing where if a person puts forth a solution that simply doesn't work, people are free to turn their backs on it and go, nah, that's not for me. You can't do that with government. Government's like, no, 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 no. This may not work for you, but you're still going to pay for it. And they put their hand out and point, mm, come on, give me the money. Otherwise, we send men with badges and guns to hurt you. Which, again, a surprising number of people accept is, no, that's good. That's good. We need that. So roads are just one example. There are probably a lot of others as well. And I'm not encouraging you, hey, um, maybe what you need to do is uh, get yourself a cabin out in the woods, uh, grow a big beard, and write manifestos, kind of like the Unabomber did. No, I'm not saying turn your back on society, but I am saying that the better we get at solving problems as close to the source as possible, in other words, as locally as possible, the better results we're going to get. If we can do it with private means, yes, there's incentive. Well, somebody could be making money on it. Sure they could. But you have to understand, under under the free market, the only way they're going to make money is if they're actually providing a value to someone. If they're not providing that value, they're not going to make money. Why? Because people won't do business with them. And again, I want to contrast that with government. I mean, it's it's kind of an easy target, but look at uh, look at government schools. I know here in my home state of Idaho, uh, there's the, the schools have consistently been underperforming no matter how much money is shoveled into the government school system. Where's the incentive to improve? Here's a hint. There is none. Because the funding source is secured, we will take from the taxpayers, you know, citing constitutional protections for why we must do so. It says right here we have to have a, a free and public education system. So we'll take as much money as possible. But as far as delivering that value to the people, no, it doesn't do it. 
And again, that's just one example. Why do you think the visit to the DMV is such a miserable thing for most people? Do they have incentive to have really outstanding, efficient customer service that gets people through quickly as they pay for the right to use something they own under penalty of law? Yeah. I think you, maybe, maybe you're starting to get the picture. Government is very good at taking rights from you. In other words, things that you should be free to do and selling it back to you for a price and expecting you to be grateful that they're willing to do that. The free market could never get away with that. Which is why any attempts to privatize are always met with appeals to envy. Well, that just is something that's going to benefit the rich. Someone would make money on it. Well, here's the problem. Somebody is making money. In fact, it's it's interesting. You hear the term grifter used to describe people, usually people who are, you know, not working for government. But the biggest grifters of all, yeah, they work for the state. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if I painted too broad a brush uh, with that last uh, segment, I know there are good people who work for the state. My wife is, in fact, a public school teacher. But I think in general, I'm going to stand by my statement of government has the biggest number of grifters possible. And I'm, I'm looking at the top, too, by the way, the politicians, the, the legislators, the people who the the elected officials who I know would like us to believe we can't live without them and their wisdom and their benevolence and the blessings that they shower on us. But what value do they really provide compared to someone working in the free market who has to provide value or you have the choice of taking your patronage elsewhere? Hopefully that that makes the point. Nonetheless, I want to move on here. Obstacles that stand in the way of claiming our freedom are very significant right now. They appear to be growing. I think this has been the case probably for most of our lifetimes. But before you lose hope, I want to share with you an essay from Barry Brownstein on how obstacles to freedom can actually become the way to freedom. This is kind of a neat way to look at things. Barry Brownstein writes in his Meditations, Marcus Aurelius famously observed the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Contemporary writer Ryan Holiday put it this way, the obstacle is the way. Now, Meditations was a personal journal. Aurelius was writing to himself what he was learning from his experience of life. He never dreamed thousands of years later, millions would find inspiration in his words. Faced with challenges, Aurelius uh, reminded himself to adapt and convert to his own purposes the obstacle to his acting. His choice of purpose didn't control circumstances in the world, but it did determine his reaction to events. Aurelius also realized that when he failed to meet his standards, in the next moment, he could still make another choice to be guided by his purpose and values. In fact, he chided himself not to feel exasperated or defeated or despondent because your days aren't packed with wise and moral actions. But to get back up when you fail, to celebrate behaving like a human, however imperfectly, and fully embrace the pursuit that you've embarked on. I mean, come on, 2,000 years ago or more? Those words have, uh, have 
stood the test of time, I think, pretty well. Probably because Marcus Aurelius really understood human nature. Now, Barry Brownstein says, We read Aurelius to awaken in ourselves the choice before us when we face an obstacle. In frustration, we may blame external forces and the actions of others for the obstruction. Responding in anger, we may take actions we later regret. The words of Aurelius prompt us to acknowledge that we, ourselves, not others, determine the quality of our experience. The things you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. Now, Barry Brownstein says, we don't have to pretend to be glad when obstacles arise, but we can use impediments to discover our ignorance and question our beliefs and assumptions standing in the way of overcoming obstacles. In Poor Richard's Almanac, Ben Franklin wrote, the things which hurt instruct, more accurately can instruct, since sometimes we stubbornly refuse to learn. Over the millennia, others have echoed Aurelius, Ralph Waldo Emerson observed in his essay on compensation, our strength grows out of our weakness. A great man is always willing to be little. Every man in his lifetime needs to thank his faults, as no man, no man thoroughly understands a truth until he has contended against it. And Emerson explained why. When he sits, or whilst he sits on the cushion of advantages, he goes to sleep. When he is pushed, tormented, defeated... He has a chance to learn something. He has been put on his wits, on his manhood. He has gained facts, learns his ignorance, is cured of the insanity of conceit, has got moderation and real skill. In short, Emerson wrote, life invests itself with inevitable conditions, which the unwise seek to dodge. Boy, is that powerful. Now, Barry Brownstein says, we may imagine that the powerful and the wealthy lack obstacles, but Emerson gave this counterexample. The president has paid dear for his White House. It has commonly cost him all his peace and the best of his manly attributes. But what about, level, or what about obstacles, rather, on a societal level? Today, the outlook for freedom seems bleak, with many obstacles barring its expression. Freedom is objectively declining, and the end of the road to serfdom is near. A fearful and illiberal population willingly accepts the decrees of authoritarian politicians. Can these obstacles be turned into an advantage for freedom lovers? O'Berry says, be reminded that only individuals choose their purpose and course of action. Other influences arise in social processes, but it is an individual who can say, enough, I will stop dodging the choices I have to make. I will stop blaming others for the impediments I face. I will start to learn from my problems. Authoritarians exploit beliefs that others are to blame for our poor choices. In his 1951 allegory, Outlook for Freedom, Leonard Reed's character learns how little he knows about freedom. That character begins to see that freedom, I'm sorry, that fascism rather, communism, socialism, had an unmistakable common characteristic, and that is belief in the use of organized police force or government as a means to attain social performance. He saw living a life in accord with the principles of violence, whereby energy and spirit are inhibited and suppressed, prevents human flourishing. Yet in contrast to the principles of violence is a life in accord with the principles of love, whereby the, per the potentialities of man in spirit and in energy can be released from authority. 
Now, Barry Brownstein points out, of course, Reed is not referring to romantic love, but to the application of kindly virtues in human relations, such as tolerance, charity, good sportsmanship, the right of another to his views, integrity, the, pri- the practice of not doing to others what you would not have them do to you. Reed pointed to a common error. Thinking of freedom as something separate and apart from ourselves and others as individuals, as though freedom had a capacity independent of man of coming and going as comets or sunspots do, or as though it were beyond their own wills and conduct. Reed's character had, for the first time, a realization that his weakness had been in his own mental stagnation. Obstacles can impede progress when we refuse to go beyond our mental stagnation. In his allegory, Reed observed that the achievement of individual liberty depends solely on an advancement in understanding the principles of liberty. Then it follows that liberty cannot be ours to experience faster than understanding can be advanced. Grasping what freedom means, Reed's character began to think of himself as a person having capacities for intellectual evolution. Now, in compensation, Emerson wrote, you cannot do wrong without suffering wrong. Doing wrong feeds into a cycle of wrongdoing. In fact, Emerson offered an example. All infractions of love and equity in our social relations are speedily punished. They are punished by fear. Whilst I stand in simple relations to my fellow man, I have no displeasure in meeting him. So Barry reminds us those who stand for using government to commit violence against others are punished by fear. Authoritarians who commit violence use fear to advocate more violence. This unvirtuous cycle destroys freedom. As for the outlook for freedom, Reed wrote, There was now as much chance of achieving freedom as any time in the history of the world. As if confronting resistance, Reed's character asks, Have you not and others as much capacity for understanding as those who came before you? That's a profound thought. And Barry Brownstein goes on to tell us, Aurelius is clear. Our advancement depends on how we use obstacles. Reed is clear. Society's advancement toward greater freedom depends on our choices. Reed advised for a man to be fully free, he must first appreciate that others, as well as himself, are responsible and self-controlling. Think about that. How many times have you heard people say, well, we really can't have freedom. Too many people are stupid. As if they couldn't possibly be stupid themselves, but that's not the point. Let people be stupid. Freedom will always have risks. It's preferable to the alternative. So Barry Brownstein says, before it's too late, will enough of us wake, awaken and begin to evolve our understanding of freedom? That's a good question. Reed considered the question over 70 years ago. Today, more obstacles are in the way. Now, if we choose to, if we set our purpose rather to learn from obstacles today, there's no better opportunity to choose freedom over violence. And thankfully, Leonard Reed, Aurelius, and Emerson point the way. The more significant the obstacles, the greater the potential change. Beautiful. And and to me, this this really summarizes why I feel a sense of encouragement, almost, uh, almost excitement, even though all around me, I see things getting difficult. I see things uh, shaping up to become really trying. I mean, they already are for a lot of us, but I think that, uh, that things have the potential to become much more serious. And yet, I believe the greater those obstacles are, the greater the potential change, and the greater the reward for those who are willing to stand up and be a part 
of that necessary change. I suspect you're one of those people or you wouldn't be listening to a message like this. Find the courage to stand up and walk into the flames. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, I suppose you probably noticed over the weekend, uh, interesting with with the Pfizer uh, revelations from Project Veritas, isn't it interesting that uh, suddenly there was uh, another excuse for rioting in major cities over the, uh, the beating death of a young black man at the hands of five black police officers? Interesting. I know that uh, there are those who are very anxious to make it into a racial issue. Well, you know, even the fact that these five black police officers beat a black man to death, that's just more evidence of white supremacy. But it's not. You know what it's, an e- it's evidence of? It's an evidence of the impunity with which the punitive priesthood, which is uh, Will Griggs' uh, terminology for describing the, the modern policing state, can act. It's about authoritarianism. And I'm not going to encourage you, hey, go watch the video for yourself and watch what happened. It's pretty brutal. And these guys rightly deserve to be fired, and they all face second-degree murder charges. And there are even some pretty credible allegations that uh, some of these police officers in Memphis may have been members of the Vice Lords gang. As in, there is video evidence of beatings that they dished out at the behest of the Vice Lords gang and they took the videos to prove that the, uh, you know, justice had been administered per the instructions of whoever was calling the shots for the gang. That's kind of scary stuff. How could something like this happen? Well, uh, Memphis, uh, among other municipalities, has had a very hard time getting people recruited into its police force. So they lowered their standards and apparently, uh, in some cases, may have even just waived the standards. Look, if somebody wants to be a cop, we'll make him a cop which means some really unsavory people have found their way into that punitive priesthood. Okay, so this is leading me not to let's bash on the cops. There are great police officers out there. But the system itself has been and continues to be weaponized against the common people. And one of the places that we see this happening more than anything is the continuing push for common sense gun laws. Now, Most street cops, even in big cities, will recognize that, you know what, if you want to protect what's near and dear to you, that's a responsibility that's going to fall squarely on your own shoulders. And I know the jurisdictions change, you know, in terms of, you know, what they're willing to allow and what they aren't. But street cops, the folks out there, the rank and file, understand that there's a vast difference between the the hood you know, the, the criminal out there, the gangbanger, the holdup man who's out there, uh, you know, victimizing people and someone who wants to possess a personal firearm for protection. One is a threat to the well-being of society and the other one is just a person trying to mind their own business, hoping that they never have to use that tool that carries uh, that they carry along with them that carries the power of life and death. I still think the best analogy I've seen to the personal firearm in terms of of protection is the fire extinguisher. You know, when you go out and buy a fire extinguisher, when you go get your fire extinguishers recharged, you know, as you should do on a regular basis, 
Are you doing so because secretly you're a pyro who's just hoping for a chance for something to catch fire so you can pull that baby out and use it? Because, see, that's how that's how anti-gun people or anti-freedom people portray gun owners. Well, you're just a Rambo wannabe and you just are looking for an excuse to get out there and use it. Got a couple articles I'm including in today's show notes that I would like you to uh, to consider. And, and I have to say that uh, I'm really disappointed to see Reader's Digest is now jumping on the bandwagon to clamor for gun control. I loved Reader's Digest. I grew up reading Reader's Digest as a kid. A good portion of the reading in my life has been either Reader's Digest itself or their condensed books. But boy, they are definitely on board for the idea of, well, we need common sense gun laws. And David Kodria, uh, writing for AmmoLand.com, says, look, that's the road to citizen disarmament. There's uh, David Saldana, writing for Reader's Digest, says, polls show a majority of Americans want Congress to pass common-sense gun laws. And these laws, he says, would not ban gun ownership nor repeal the Second Amendment. Now, David Codrea says, Reader's Digest, how disappointing. I guess with all the other woke capitalist rope sellers, seeing them turn was to be expected. Who Saldana is and what qualifies him as an authority, well, that's unclear. What is clear is he's a lefty propagandist who cherry-picks what we're to assume are facts from sources with demonstrable anti-gun agendas, and his arguments fall on their faces right out of the starting gate. What the majority of Americans want depends not only where the polls lead them with calculated questions, but also on what they actually know about the laws that they're being queried on, which in this case is mostly what the media tells them. That and rights aren't contingent on majority rule. Otherwise, two of us could do whatever we wanted to one of you. Funny how when you test them, or at least when you test them on this issue, protecting minorities isn't really what the left wants to do at all, unless by minority you mean the global elites. So, as for the assurance that the Second Amendment and guns are safe if you give the grabbers what they want... Well, the rest of Saldana's regurgitation of tired talking points and goals they've let slip for decades show that to be a lie. And since the right it recognizes was not created by the government, something that's been recognized in the Cruikshank and Heller cases by the Supreme Court, repealing the Second Amendment would not eliminate what it was worded to protect, the ravings of retired dotard justices notwithstanding. So in any case, saying they won't take all guns when they have no legitimate authority to take any is a bit like saying, we don't want to rape you, we just want to molest you a little bit. The only rational response to that is, no, your move. Besides, they really do want to rape you. So what is this Saldana character telling anyone ignorant enough to support their own disarmament by a violence monopoly equates with common sense? Well, here are a few examples. They want to tell citizens old enough to marry, vote, form contracts, and serve in the military and statutory militia, you can't have guns. They want to ban standard capacity magazines. They want to make gun trafficking even more illegal. They want to outlaw home builds. Criminalize not locking up your safety. Ban semi-automatics. End private sales by imposing registration precursor background checks. Impose ammo limits, deny due process through guilty until proven innocent red flag laws, abridge the First Amendment for the children, and impose prior restraint restraint training and require poll tax-like insurance before you're allowed to exercise your right. 
Now, he says, I didn't want to take the time to flesh out all those bullet points because, uh, he says, we've been over these ad nauseum. There's nothing I could add that regular readers here couldn't knowledgeably expand on. But by way of authority, Saldana cites lefty think tanks and gun grabber groups throwing in a FUD and maybe a rich disarmament fanatic for good measure. No, of course, he doesn't include anyone on the firearms freedom side because that's not his goal. They're all smeared as the obstacles standing in the way of his common sense nirvana. As for his saving thousands of lives a year claim, just checking one of his sources gives us a pretty good feel for how the others justify their uh, baloney. They infer, they simulate, and they guess. And they still have to qualify their claims with the equivocal word may, which also means may not. For all their correlation causation assurances, their paltry percentage difference claims over categories of storage, carry, and use. Ignore the fact that the criminals who cause the problems laugh at and ignore every one of the restrictions that the ivory tower eggheads beholden to their paymasters are trying to impose on the rest of us. And they never talk about the thousands, if not millions, of defensive gun uses that are illegal in sensitive areas or gun-free zones. You know, the ones the CDC tried to remove from the stats at the behest of the citizen disarmament lobby. The other thing Saldana misses, either deliberately or because he's just a parroting dilettante trapped in a progressive talking point bubble, is that, say you give the grabbers everything they're demanding here. Who thinks that will be enough? We've seen the same list before. We know civilian disarmament or citizen disarmament has been and remains the goal. Remember Thomas Dodd, author of the Gun Control Act of 1968, who publicly wished for abolishing all guns and to, to destroy them all? And Brady campaign predecessor, Handgun Control Incorporated's Nelson Pete Shields 1976 plot to take one step at a time to make possession of all handguns totally illegal. Give in on any one point and that's one less obstacle they need to overcome on their way to more. So, of course, they're talking about taking our guns. And anyone snottily dismissing that as paranoia is ignorant, a liar, or both. Now, David Codria says, the one hopeful thing about this is readers aren't buying it. At this writing, Saldana's getting his uh, hindquarters handed to him over in comments. So it's a chance to get an otherwise suppressed message heard outside the echo chamber. In case you want to join in. I don't know if arguing online or even posting comments online is going to do a whole lot for you, but I can tell you this. Having the tools of freedom, having the training, and having the will to use them to defend what is most precious, that's the way it's done. And the deterrence factor is undeniable. This is The Brian Hyde Show.